You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Mata. I'm an art history degree holder, a social media manager, and a person with no fewer than five expired museum memberships. How about that? The pandemic has been cruel to us all. I really miss going to museums. The premise of the podcast is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. This week I'm doing that with just the beginnings of a cold, so I apologize in advance for my energy fluctuation probably throughout this episode. <laughs> Let's see how we do with these two brief housekeeping notes, and then we'll go from there. So right now you are listening to an Airwave Media podcast. I'm so happy to be part of that little podcast network family. For the next month, Airwave is still conducting their listener survey to help me get to know my listeners and what you are interested in, what you want, and what you think of the show. I would be so grateful if you would support the podcast by taking just this short questionnaire. You can find it at surveymonkey.com r slash airwave. It takes literally just a few minutes. Most of it is multiple choice and your feedback will help us at Airwave and me specifically improve the things that you listen to. So, I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. There's even a place at the end if you would like to tell me anything you want, please be nice. <laughs> And at the end of the survey, you can enter to win a $500 Amazon gift card. So again, head to surveymonkey.com r airwave or click the link. It's going to be in the episode description and thank you in advance. Secondly, this is your cursory reminder that no matter where you are listening to Art of History, you can go over to Apple Podcasts, give it a rating, leave me a positive review. All of those are things that help new listeners find the show and help me do bigger and better things with the show. And if you're looking to engage with the podcast outside of these once monthly uploads, please follow over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. That's also the place where I post the images for each episode and the supplemental pictures that help tell the story. Finally, if you are looking to support me further and maybe get some ad-free episodes of the show, I do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash matta underscore of underscore fact. That's M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. I post ad-free episodes over there and I have been slacking on this, but I'm about to share all of my outlines on there as well. So you can get access to a little bit of bonus content. Okay, that's clearly enough plugging things for one day. I've rambled long enough. Let's dive right into the meat of the episode. As I'm recording this and as you're listening to it, it is the end of Women's History Month around the world. And while we're not strangers to feminist art history on this show, I cover a lot of women here, I thought we should cover a quintessentially feminist art historical topic for this episode. And this is also a requested episode. I had a DM on the Instagram a few months ago at this point requesting we talk about French artist Rosa Bonheur's The Horse Fair. 
I remembered talking about Rosa in my art history classes in college, so I quickly put her on the short list of episode topics and then moved her right up the list as I realized this would be Women's History Month and the perfect time to talk about her. Gardner's Art Through the Ages, that quintessential textbook for those studying art history, calls her the most celebrated woman artist of the 19th century. Likewise, H.W. Jansen's mammoth History of Art calls her the most famous woman artist of her time. In 1997, New York Times critic Mary Bloom claimed Rosa Bonheur as the most famous woman painter of her time, perhaps of all time. But in 1822, she was just the eldest of four children being born to Oscar Raymond and Sophie Bonheur in Bordeaux. Her father was a landscape and portrait painter, but after having four children with his wife, Oscar abandoned the Bonheur family, moving to a community known as the San Simonians. San Simonianism, which I've seen referred to as both an early 19th century Christian utopian movement and a version of socialism that abolished class and gender distinctions, did champion, among other things, quote, the education and enfranchisement of women. When Rosa's mother, who was a piano teacher, died of tuberculosis when Rosa was just 11, she and her siblings subsequently went back into the care of their father. He sent the two boys, Auguste and Isidore, to boarding school and the one daughter, Juliette, to live with a family friend. Rosa remained with her father, and from him she did begin receiving artistic training. By family accounts, Rosa had been a, quote, unruly child, a tomboy from birth, and what her grandfather called a boy in petticoats. But sketching with a pencil was one of the few activities that could get her to sit still. Her mother had also taught her to read and write by asking her to choose and draw a different animal for each letter of the alphabet. The Bonheur family had moved to Paris when Rosa was six or seven, and with some artistic training from her father under her belt, she later spent her teenage years sketching the works of the Dutch masters in the Louvre. Gardner writes that as a result of her father's ideals, Bonheur also, quote, launched her career believing that as a woman and an artist, she had a special role to play in creating a new and perfect society. When she was 19, Rosa saw her first success when she had several small works included in that year's Paris Salon. That included Plowing in the Nivernais, which is now in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, which depicts two teams of oxen plowing a field, an act that translates to the viewer as deep commitment to the natural landscape. It won first medal that year at the Salon and set the stage for Rosa to become a respected painter. Her style, in the most basic sense, wasn't groundbreaking in the least. In fact, it was right in line with other academic paintings at the time. Bonheur was driven by a, quote, realist passion for accuracy in her work, capturing the likeness of her subjects not within a picturesque or staged setting, but within the realities of their situation. But this sense of realism did not manifest itself in her work in the same way that it did in some of her contemporaries, Courbet, Millet, Daumier, to name just a few. These artists depicted scenes of hardship and struggle within social and political contexts, usually by painting the peasant class. Instead, Rosa took inspiration from the animal world, particularly from the fauna that could be found in the French countryside, cows, rabbits, sheep, and horses. Many of her paintings featured painstakingly rendered animals within a landscape, which she depicted with, quote, a convincing naturalism that later placed her among the most influential realists. Interestingly, I think, her siblings also went down this route. 
Auguste and Juliette would become noted animal painters, or animaliers as they were known in French, in their own right, while Isidore would be known for his animal sculptures. But Rose's style would set her apart as the finest animalier, perhaps of all time. In addition to her, quote, fresh and direct observation, Rosa was also coming to be known for her use of movement and dramatic shading. As the 1850s commenced, Rosa honed her attention on the Parisian horse market, where she would spend over a year and a half studying equine anatomy in pursuit of what would become her masterpiece. Women were prohibited from entering this horse sale, but Rosa disguised herself as a man so that she could attend and not draw attention to herself. It seems that this was sanctioned behavior, as I've seen it mentioned that she applied for a literal permit for transvestitism from the French authorities, to be renewed every six months, demonstrating the great lengths to which she would go to master her craft, and the extent to which gender still dictated every aspect of public life in this midpoint of the 19th century. But the men's clothing wasn't just a one-off for Rosa. She also enjoyed wearing it in her daily life for practicality's sake. She called her trousers and overcoats as she was attending horse fairs her great protectors. In her trousers and coat, she would visit the horse market twice a week to study the anatomy and movement of living horses. And again, she did this for over a year and a half. After dark, she would also spend hours at Paris slaughterhouses studying the anatomy of dead horses. She had been visiting the slaughterhouses from her teenage years, preparing detailed studies that she later used as reference images for many of her animal paintings. So literally, her great protectors, articles of clothing, were the required uniform of this work to keep blood and mud and manure off of her. They weren't just a bold statement. Rosa completed numerous drawings and at least three full studies rendered in paint, all of the horse market. Then, at the invitation of Charles de Morny, the Minister of the Interior who oversaw the Division of Fine Arts in France, Bonheur, hoping to secure an official commission, presented some of those studies alongside some other ones she had completed for another projected painting. That one would become Haymaking in the Auvergne. Wanting to give Rosa an official commission, but assuming that she was too inexperienced in painting horses to carry out the first project, de Morny selected the haymaking painting, which depicts peasants loading a hay cart pooled by oxen. She was left to render the final version of the horse fair without any institutional support. At this point, if you haven't already checked out the Instagram or pulled up the image on Google, I would recommend you do so. Again, you're looking for The Horse Fair by Rosa Bonheur. The painting, inarguably her most famous, depicts the horse market that was held in Paris on the tree-lined Boulevard de l'Hôpital. It was near the Asylum of Salpêtrière, which is visible in the left background. You can compare the act of attending one of these horse fairs in Paris to that of going to a car show today with the intention of purchasing the latest model. This scene is perhaps a bit more picturesque than attending a car show, especially in America, but there we are. The foreground of the painting is highlighted by brilliant white light, despite the swirling blue-gray clouds in the sky. That light builds up the turbulence of the scene, in which the horses at the market are being run around in a circle, as much to burn off energy as to show off their value to potential customers, who are able to observe this chaotic scene from the safety of a wooded slope on the right of the canvas. 
The most standout horses in the group are those magnificent white Percherons in the center of the canvas. They are bred for hauling great weights. The National Gallery says that Bonheur has made the convulsion of the muscles and the flying manes almost tangible, capturing the rearing, plunging animals and the strength and dexterity of their handlers with almost photographic reality. She has captured their spirit and their world, with its noises, smells, and sense of danger, and made them into high art. The legs of the horses and men who handle them are nearly indistinguishable from one another in the writhing, choreographed mass of bodies here. The horses' hooves kick up dust and clumps of dirt so viscerally that you can almost hear them galloping across the packed earth. And yet, a closer look at the individual horses, once you focus your eyes, shows that they represent a full range of personalities and behaviors, all the way from the rebellious to the submissive. Some are young and wild, others might be older and more broken in. The canvas is quite large. It measures eight and a quarter feet high and 16 feet by seven and a half inches wide, making it kind of panoramic in a way. At the time of its creation, it was the largest single painting devoted to an animal subject. It has been compared in its scale and scope to Courbet's Burial at Ornan. It also draws inspiration from the animal painters George Stubbs and Eugène Delacroix, as well as the high drama of Theodore Jericho. Rosa herself wrote that she, quote, happened to think about the Parthenon frieze while she was in a crowd of horse dealers trying out their beasts. This, of course, refers to the muscularly sculpted horses in battle on the ceiling of the ancient Greek Parthenon. Rosa called the final version of the horse fair her own Parthenon frieze. The final canvas was notable for its acute attention to detail, particularly in the rendering of the horse's anatomy and musculature, thanks to Rosa's years spent poring over dead and living animals. And while there were other painters successfully rendering horses throughout art history, no one was doing it quite like Rosa. She was obsessed with faithfully rendering their forms down to the smallest detail. Up until this point in art history, most paintings of horses, I love this detail, were not interested in faithfully representing their eyes. They Painters would substitute in human eyes for the horse's eyes, giving them something of an anthropomorphized appearance and projecting human emotion onto them. But Rosa has skillfully rendered, through careful observation, a faithful picture of a horse's face, body, and yes, eyes. Looking at this piece, it really does force you to like zoom yourself in and then zoom yourself out many, many times before you get the full picture of what's going on here. Yes, you can look closely at the detailed images of horses and their riders, but you can also take a step back. And that's enabled by the way that Rosa has left a strip of earth between you and the scene of horses. She has depicted the horses and their handlers in various states of motion and rest so realistically that it's easy to think, standing in front of the canvas, thank goodness that you're just far enough away that you're able to avoid getting trampled. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, where this painting is today, says that her choice of massive draft horses rather than saddle horses depicted at the moment of turning before they stride back up the boulevard imparts thunderous movement and energy to the scene. There is only one horse in the painting without a visible handler, and this is a small sorrel or brown horse just left of center. Some have interpreted this as Rosa herself. 
It has also been suggested that one of the human figures, a markedly beardless rider aside a tan stallion gazing directly out of the canvas with a half smile on their lips, is a self-portrait. I will zoom in on who I'm talking about and post that photo on the Instagram for sure. I would also be remiss not to mention at this point that the horse is sometimes used as a symbol of sexuality, particularly when it comes to impulse, energy, and drive. Rose's self-portrait, if it is in fact included here, seems to be the master of her mount, able to calmly gaze out of the canvas at us rather than having to direct her attention to calming the steed. One could extrapolate from there, if one were so inclined, that she may have been making a statement about not only her artistic capabilities, but also about her certainty in her own identity and, yes, drives. I will leave that interpretation there. I'm not interested in being too speculative today, but I would encourage you to take a look for yourself and decide what you think. Now, Rosa, who was already a well-established artist by the time she was working on the horse fair, was widely praised for this action-filled painting. She exhibited it at the Salon of 1853 to resounding acclaim. The painting then traveled the continent, where it was first displayed in Ghent, and then in 1854 it was shown in Rosa's birthplace, Bordeaux. When the city of Bordeaux declined to purchase the horse fair, Bonheur accepted an offer of 40,000 francs from the British dealer Ernest Gambart. Gambart? He's not French. Gambart. Very roughly, I believe this comes out to about $200,000 today. Immediately after this sale went through, however, the French Inspector General of Fine Arts and the Chief Administrator of the annual salon, Charles-Philippe de Chenevière, that's, yep, we're going to go with that, apparently made an attempt to substitute the horse fair for haymaking in the Auvergne, the piece that the state had initially sponsored through an official commission. This would thereby make the painting remain in the nation of France rather than going abroad. His offer was refused. In the French press, the sale of the horse fair to England was lamented, quote, as a national loss, and they were correct about that. In 1855, likely before the sale actually took place, Rosa retouched the horse fair, quote, repainting passages in the ground, the trees, and the sky that had been criticized for their summary execution when the painting was shown at the Salon. In short, some viewers thought the painting looked unfinished, and this was probably due to some of the impressionistic techniques that Rosa was employing as she completed the composition. Because she went in and retouched things, the canvas bears the inscription Rosa Bonheur and is dated 1853.5. As the horse fair is making its journey across the channel to the UK, I'm going to take a little break, and when I come back, we will pick right back up and see where it goes next. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And we are back. Upon arriving in the United Kingdom, the horse fair embarked on a two-year tour of the British Isles. Queen Victoria even asked for the painting to be brought to her at Buckingham Palace for a private viewing. This was likely quite the exhilarating thrill for that little queen. But the painting's international travels were not going to end there. British art dealer Ernest Gambart sold it to New Jersey collector William P. Wright in 1857, who in turn, in 1866, sold it to New York department store magnate Alexander T. Stewart. And in 1887, when the painting was listed in the estate sale of Stewart's widow, the railroad millionaire Cornelius Vanderbilt secured it as a gift to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where you can still see it to this day. The Met's catalog notes that, quote, at the time, it was one of the most celebrated works of contemporary art in the world. Its popularity spurred not only by its wide-ranging display, but by the dissemination of reproductions. Art dealer Gambart not only represented Rosa in sales of her original work, but also purchased the reproduction rights to it. Viewers eagerly purchased those reproductions, making it one of the best-known artworks of the 19th century. This was spurred along by emerging technologies in engraving and photography. The grandfather of modern American artist Wayne Thiebaud was one of those who took a reproduction home. Thibault, who was born in 1920, recalls seeing a black-and-white photographic reproduction of the horse fair above his grandfather's desk at age seven. He was entranced when he learned that it was A, a painting, and B, 16 feet wide by 8 feet high. Thibault reflected on the influence that the horse fair and Rosa Bonheur had upon his own work in 2019 as part of the Met's Artist Project. There's a video to go along with this, I will link it in the episode description and on the Instagram. Thibault was known for his colorful works depicting commonplace objects like cakes and paint cans, but even to do something like that requires an understanding of the fundamentals and the heritage of painting. In this video, he recounts what he calls the, quote, cheap tricks of artistic technique that Bonheur had married together in order to make the horse fair so successful and so engrossing for the viewer. Here are just a few of the things he has called out, quote, She's used almost every painting convention. There's classic, realism, romanticism, beautiful kinds of impressionism, this marvelous circular motion. She's used every kind of light, glowing, glinting, all the way to no light. You're challenged to find lines. The lines are all inferred here. I love that last note that he makes, because indeed, if you zoom in on Rosa's brushstrokes, you see that she has not delineated the forms that she's representing. Instead, she's relying on color and light and shading to differentiate these shapes from one another, and that is the mark of a true artistic master at work. 
Rose's technical skill led her to win the first medal at the Salon of 1848, a very high honor, and she later became the first woman to receive the French Legion of Honor for achievement in the arts. The story there takes us a bit farther into Rose's life, to the point where she was not only the most famous female painter of her age, but also the richest. In 1859, she purchased the small Chateau de Bay in the forest of Fontainebleau, not far from Paris, and she lived there for the rest of her life. She would die in 1899. At the Chateau de Bay, Rosa had her own menagerie, which included your typical sorts of animals, sheep and goats, chicken, cows, and horses, but also she had otters, monkeys, and even a lion at one point. This, as well as her connections with other landowners with their own menageries, meant that Rosa could paint even exotic animals with painstaking accuracy. Anyway, it was at the Chateau de Bay that she also became familiar to, even friendly with, the Empress Eugenie, the wife of Napoleon III. I guess you could call the Napoleon family something akin to Rosa's neighbors at Fontainebleau. One afternoon, the Empress apparently arrived unannounced to the chateau while Rosa was there to view her work. She was so impressed by it that she left the room, returning sometime later to pin the medal of the Chevalier of the Legion d'Honneur on the painter's chest, quite without ceremony. Genius, she said, has no sex. In 1894, Rosa was raised to the rank of officer of the Legion of Honor, becoming the first female of any discipline to hold that rank. Now, while Rosa Bonheur's technical skill is impressive and, you know, probably the most important thing about her, I would argue that it is just important in setting the horse fair apart that she has ideals and attitudes with which her brush was saturated just as much as it was with oil paint. Firstly, there's the way that she portrayed her horses with a sense of empathy and dignity. The painting, with its individualistic depiction of the horses, reflects Rose's belief that creatures should be treated with kindness and respect. She once wrote, quote, The horse, like the human being, is both the most beautiful and the most sad of all living things. The only difference is that the human being is unattractive because of his vice or property. He is solely to blame for his deterioration, whilst the horse is merely a tool in his hands. It was probably for this reason that Rosa's work would be recontextualized into the late 19th and early 20th centuries animal rights movements. Then, of course, comes the feminist lens, a place that will linger for the rest of this episode. Rosa's decision to hone in on a traditionally male-dominated subject matter, horses and horse trading, was a bold statement in itself. By depicting this scene, then, through the female gaze, Rosa challenged the notion that women were limited to certain subject matters or styles. However, a feminist lens didn't really exist when Rosa Bonheur was exhibiting her masterpiece to a contemporary audience. Yes, the 19th century was a revolutionary time for women. It was a time during which women would go from being barred from public education to having access to the most prestigious schools possible. Revolutions across Europe, the American Civil War and the end of slavery, as well as the beginnings of what would become the suffrage movement, all represented steps towards a world where women could, quote, succeed independently from men. In the art world, women were, quote, aided by the establishment of networks such as the Union of Female Painters and Sculptors of Paris and the Society of Women Artists in London. But the limitations of perceived femininity still followed female artists around like a specter. 
The Metz catalog says that, quote, during a period when female painters were not uncommon, Bonheur stood out owing to a lack of perceptible femininity in her work. One anonymous writer in 1855 described the horse fair as, quote, a wonderful work for any painter, but as the production of a female, it is marvelous in conception and execution. Another critic remarked with wonder that, quote, so masculine a work is the production of a female hand. British art critic John Ruskin declared in his notes in 1875, quote, I always said that no woman could paint. He would later consider successful female artists exceptions to this rule, not evidence disproving it. Rosa, for her own part, remarked of Ruskin's own drawings, quote, He sees nature with a little eye, tout à fait comme un oiseau, quite like a bird. Throughout this episode, you've heard me, quoting historians and critics, refer to Rosa in relation to the men whose styles she was said to be emulating or inspired by. Courbet, Millet, Daumier, Stubbs, Delacroix, Jericho, the guy who sculpted the Parthenon frieze, whoever he was. Most art history textbooks throw these names at the reader without stopping to explain what about their work was so impactful on others. We're simply supposed to know and understand. These are big names that belong to big men in art history. How could they not be impactful on this female artist? That's why it was so delightful when I stumbled upon that video of Wayne Thiebaud discussing how Rosa influenced him. You just don't hear that a male artist has taken pieces of their training and the artistic heritage from a female artist that came before them. I really wish that we could stop, in general, defining female artists and their ability in relationship to masculinity. Saying things like, it's so good, I almost thought a man did it or comparing their styles by rote to male artists working in their same schools. But particularly when it comes to people like Rosa Bonheur, whose style, it's not masculine or feminine, it's just representing life. <laughs> Rosa Bonheur, many argue, is one of the most famous artists of her time. Full stop. Not one of the most famous female artists, one of the most famous artists. Here was a woman, quote, shattering female convention, painting animals in lifelike exacting detail, as big and wild as she wanted, studying them in their natural mud and odor filled settings. I'm sure there were some male artists doing way less than this, less willing to get in the mud and get down to the nitty gritty of depicting, you know, forms from the animal world. They're not compared to women when they choose not to do that. In 1971, over two centuries after Rosa painted the horse fair, American art historian Linda Nochlin wrote her groundbreaking essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? It's one that I would encourage you to read if you haven't already. I will link it in the episode description. Or I would also encourage you to revisit it if the last time you read it fully was the night before your Women in the Arts professor was going to lead a discussion on it. In this essay, which marked the beginning of contemporary feminist art theory, Nochlin challenges the idea that women have not produced great art because of some inherent lack of talent or ability. The point is that there have been great women artists. But she argues that the institutional and societal structures that have historically excluded women from the art world have been barriers to their artistic achievement and their recognition in art history. 
Nochlin's essay was a powerful call to action for the art world to recognize and address its own biases and to work towards greater inclusivity and equality, and it includes an entire section on Rosa Bonheur. She writes that her work, quote, despite the ravages wrought upon its estimation by changes of taste and a certain admitted lack of variety, still stands as an impressive achievement to anyone interested in the art of the 19th century and in the history of taste generally. Rosa Bonheur's naturalism and ability to capture the individuality, even the soul, of each of her animal subjects coincided with bourgeois taste at the time. At another point in Why Have There Been No Great Woman Artists, Nochlin also references Rococo art, which is decidedly feminine in taste. We've talked about it before on the show. I consider it frothy. It is filled with pastels and delicate little flowers and swirls and shells and just, it's beautiful. But it was all rendered, mostly, by men. They are not hampered by this label of femininity, and yet we are so willing to ascribe a feminine label to the work of Rosa Bonheur when she's just doing what she knows. Again, I'm just getting worked up about this. Nochlin also points out that rather than attributing all of Rosa's success to the ideals and idealism of her father, it may have equally been Rosa's mother's, quote, slow decline from sheer overwork and poverty that represented a, quote, even more realistic influence on her decision to control her own destiny and to never become the slave of husband and children. Because indeed, Rosa Bonheur never married. Nochlin notes that she, quote, could explain to her biographer that she had never wanted to marry for fear of losing her independence. Too many young girls let themselves be led to the altar like lambs to the sacrifice, she maintained. Yet at the same time that she rejected marriage for herself and implied an inevitable loss of selfhood for any woman who engaged in it, she, unlike the Sansimonians, considered marriage, quote, a sacrament indispensable to the organization of society. In other words, without traditional marriage, society would break down. At one point, when asked why she herself did not get married, Rosa replied, quote, I assure you I have never had the time to consider the subject. Another time, she said, nobody ever fell in love with me. Perhaps, just perhaps, Rosa obfuscated on the subject of marriage because her main problem with it, as it would have been presented as an option for her in the 1800s, was that it would have been to a man. One thing that Nochlin doesn't point out in her landmark feminist text is that Rosa's story is also a queer one. I don't precisely know why this is. It could be from a lack of scholarship back in 1971 on the topic, as well as from a deliberate oversight. We, we just don't know. Rosa has been quoted as saying, quote, The fact is, in the way of males, I like only the bulls that I paint. Rosa did have a long-term partner in a woman named Natalie Micas, M-I-C-A-S. I'm not exactly sure how you would say that in the French. Rosa and Natalie knew each other since childhood, and they lived together at the Chateau de Baye for over four decades. Rosa had moved in with Natalie's family at age 27 after her father's death, and she then lived with Natalie in Paris until her success allowed her to purchase the chateau. They even moved Natalie's mother in with them and lived there together until Natalie's death. Rosa then had a relationship with American painter Anna Elizabeth Klumpke. They had met in 1889, the year that Natalie passed away. In later letters, Rosa sometimes referred to Anna as my wife. 
Anna moved into the chateau in 1898 and wrote Rose's biography. There are great pictures of them each taken by the other person. Um, I'll have to just show you. They're, they're going to be on the Instagram. But there's a, a picture of um, Anna painting Rosa <laughs> and a picture of Rosa painting some, some canvas um, taken by Anna. They're, they're really sweet pictures. Anna was even designated the sole beneficiary when Rosa died in 1899. Had Anna predeceased the artist, however, Rosa would have been her sole beneficiary. Rosa was interred in the Père Lachaise Cemetery in the same crypt as Natalie Micas. In 1945, three years after Anna Klumpke's death, her ashes joined Rosa and Natalie's remains there. The inscription on their tomb reads, Friendship is divine affection. The point in reading something like, Why have there been no great women artists in 2023, when feminist art history is often a required part of a liberal arts degree, is that there have been great women artists. But they were stifled for so long by doors that were almost literally barred against their entry, and their successes were always followed by an asterisk, after which a brief but firm aside would place them in relation to men. They were stifled by those things for so long that history's, quote, great woman artists were either forgotten or thought to be an exception to the rule. Linda Nochlin's pivotal essay, again written in 1971, closes... While great achievement is rare and difficult at best, it is still rarer and more difficult if, while you work, you must at the same time wrestle with inner demons of self-doubt and guilt and outer monsters of ridicule or patronizing encouragement, neither of which have any specific connection with the quality of the artwork as such. Disadvantage may indeed be an excuse, it is not, however, an intellectual position. Rather, using as a vantage point their situation as underdogs in the realm of grandeur and outsiders in that of ideology, women can reveal institutional and intellectual weaknesses in general, and at the same time that they destroy false consciousness, take part in the creation of institutions in which clear thought and true greatness are challenges open to anyone, man or woman, courageous enough to take the necessary risk and leap into the unknown. Rosa Bonheur did just that, probably without ever considering it possible for her to do anything else. She probably did not even think of herself as breaking boundaries. She certainly would not have defined herself as a feminist or a lesbian. Those labels just didn't exist. She wasn't setting out to do anything particularly radical. She was just living her truth. Art historian Whitney Chadwick once remarked that she may have been, quote, radical in her personal life, but was artistically and politically conservative. She even once mocked women who, like herself, donned men's clothing or cut their hair short. She wore a bob for most of her life. The difference was that they were doing so to make a statement. She did so, or so she thought, merely for convenience. Perhaps that's just what she told herself to be at peace with her own lifestyle, perhaps it was something else. All that considered, and working at a time when the work of women artists was largely disregarded by critics, I do think it's suitable to close with perhaps Rosa Bonheur's best-known quote. Why shouldn't I be proud to be a woman? My father told me again and again that it was woman's mission to improve the human race. To his doctrines, I owe my great and glorious ambition for the sex to which I proudly belong. 
whose independence I'll defend till my dying day. Besides, she closes, I'm convinced the future is ours. So there you have it. I'm always fascinated by the number of so-called feminist icons who probably would have balked at that term uh, and not understood the need for such theory in, you know, the history of their discipline, whether it's Rosa Bonheur in art history or someone like Ada Lovelace in engineering. But for better or worse, Rosa Bonheur stands pretty much at the forefront of art historical feminist theory. And for that reason, I am so glad I got to do this little profile of her for this podcast. If you would like to share your thoughts, feel free to hop over to the Instagram into the comments on the post to go along with this episode. Actually, it might be two posts because there are just a lot of images I want to share with you. So be sure to follow along at Art of History Podcast on Instagram. You can also shoot me an email if you would like to share your thoughts at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. I also love to get episode suggestions either in my DMs or via email, so feel free to send those my way as well. Once again, please do support the podcast and the Airwave Media Network by taking our short listener questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. Again, it's also linked in the episode description. Um, and did I, I plugged everything at the top of the episode, so I don't really have to do anything else now. So that's great. Thank you, as always, for listening and tuning in. This is the end, technically, of season two of Art of History, so we will be embarking on a new batch of um, artists and paintings and sculptures that I've grouped together in the next episode, so I'm very excited to be embarking on that with you. Thank you so much for listening. All good things to come, and I will see you in the next one. ¶¶